0: The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. Victim blaming is a concept as old as crime itself. While it's become less socially acceptable to criticize a victim, it's still a fairly common occurrence. It seems there are still certain behaviors that elicit harsh judgment of a person even if that person is a victim of murder. Following Vicki Morgan's savage murder in July of 1983, embarrassing secrets of the elite were exposed, along with society's hatred of a woman who had the audacity to wear the scarlet letter. Though Vicki Morgan was already dead, coverage of her case could almost be considered an execution by the media. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I explore the controversial case of Vicki Morgan. This case takes us to Los Angeles, California. Alfred Bloomingdale, a major player in this story, lived on the west side of the city in Holmby Hills. Along with Beverly Hills and Bel Air, Holmby Hills is considered part of L.A.'s Platinum Triangle. All three affluent neighborhoods consist of multi-million dollar homes. Historically, Holmby Hills has been the place where some of the wealthiest and most influential names in Hollywood have chosen to hang their hats. Stars like Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, Bing Crosby, Barbara Streisand, Neil Diamond, and more recently, Kylie Jenner have all lived in the neighborhood. Vicki Morgan, on the other hand, lived in the modest working class Studio City, just over the hill from Hollywood. Like the name implies, Studio City was developed to create affordable housing for employees of the surrounding film and television studios. Today, we can see the outcome of a massive income divide that began around the same time that Vicky lived in Studio City. According to a 1992 article in the Los Angeles Times, in the 1980s, California had one of the largest wealth inequalities in the country. This wealth gap revealed a vast diversity in lifestyles between the haves and the have-nots. 40 years later, we're still having the same conversations. Vicki Morgan was thrust into the world of the haves at a young age living a lifestyle that many could only dream of. But it would all come crashing down, and Vicky wouldn't survive long enough to dig herself out of the massive hole she must have felt she was in when everything she had was stripped away. Victoria Lynn Laney was born in August of 1952 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Her parents, Delbert and Connie, had another daughter born six years before Vicki. Delbert was an Air Force sergeant who had little interest in being a father. He left Connie for another woman shortly after Vicky was born. Luckily, Connie wasn't left raising her daughters alone for very long. A few years after the divorce, she met and married factory worker Ralph Leaney. In 1956, when Vicki was four years old, the family packed up all their belongings and headed for Southern California. They settled in Montclair, a developing suburb of San Bernardino that borders Los Angeles. Connie had two sons with Ralph before he passed away unexpectedly from a heart attack. Vicky had enjoyed having a father figure in her life for just nine years before her stepfather died. Since Ralph was the family's breadwinner, Connie was forced to look for work, she began a career as a cafeteria worker in Montclair schools where her children were enrolled. In junior high, Vicki was an average student who was starting to attract a lot of attention for her model-like appearance. Like her British mother, Vicky was tall and lean with blonde hair and blue eyes. She fit right into the California standard of beauty. Connie supported Vicky in her pursuit of a modeling career even at a young age. Somehow, Connie scraped together enough money for Vicki to attend the Studio 7 Academy, a charm school in Covina. Vicky landed a few local modeling jobs, but encountered a wrench in her plans when she got pregnant at 16. Vicki dropped out of high school and gave birth to a boy in January of 1969, whom she named Todd. Most of the childcare duties became the responsibility of Vicky's mother, but Connie did expect Vicky to help support her son financially. Soon, Vicky took a job at the mall. While working in a mall boutique, Vicky crossed paths with Earl Lamb, a clothing wholesaler. At 47, Earl was nearly 3 times the age of 17-year-old Vicky. Earl didn't let the age difference stop him from pursuing Vicky though. And when Vicky found out where he lived, the glamorous Sierra Towers on the Sunset Strip, she was dazzled by opportunity. Mere weeks after meeting, Earl proposed to Vicky and she said yes. It was clear Earl could offer Vicky the kind of life she'd only dreamt of having. The couple got hitched in Vegas in 1969. Earl and Vicky's marriage was good in the beginning, but just a few weeks after tying the knot, Vicky learned she was in way over her head. It turned out, Earl was an active part of the city's swinger scene and expected Vicky to join in as well. Vicky was showered with extravagant gifts anytime she was on Earl's good side, but that meant agreeing to sexual escapades with other couples or additional women. If Vicky wasn't compliant to Earl's sexual demands, she got a beating from him. Even though Vicky's son spent most of his time at his grandmother's house, Earl resented the boy. Any attention Vicky offered her son was attention Earl could have been getting from his wife. A major distraction soon entered Vicky's life in the form of another man. As well-connected as Earl's wealth made him, Alfred Bloomingdale was much more powerful in LA's high society. Alfred was on a social tier miles higher than Earl. There are many different accounts of Alfred and Vicky's first meeting. One consistent detail is they met when Vicky was working as an usher at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. In one version of that first encounter, Alfred asked Vicky to be his daughter's tennis partner. Vicki reluctantly gave him her phone number. Before parting ways, Alfred placed a check for $8,000 into Vicki's hand, calling it a gift for a lovely girl who'd made his day. Vicki was stunned. Afterward, Vicki told Earl what happened. He cautioned her that the older man probably expected sexual favors in return. Vicki knew he was probably right but secretly cashed the check anyway. Weeks of relentless phone calls from Alfred followed. He tried to convince Vicky to meet him for lunch. She eventually agreed. They met at the Old World restaurant to share a meal and get to know each other. Alfred was completely smitten by Vicky and asked her to be his mistress. Vicky responded politely, agreeing to the arrangement but also let Alfred know that she was married. The 53-year-old was used to getting what he wanted. He asked Vicky how much money it would take to convince Earl Lamb to end their marriage. At the time, she thought he might be joking. That lunch marked the official start of their affair. Alfred had been married for over two decades, but it's hard to imagine Vicky was his first infidelity. In 1970, when Vicky turned 18, Alfred delivered on his promise. He paid Earl an undisclosed amount of cash to end his marriage to Vicky. Then Alfred paid for an apartment for his new mistress, which was a great way to keep tabs on Vicky while also having her at his beck and call. Supporting a family and a mistress on the side hardly put a strain on Alfred financially. He came from old money and had known a life of unrelatable luxury since he was born. Back in 1872, Alfred Bloomingdale's grandfather, Lehman G. Bloomingdale, co founded Bloomingdale's department store with his brother. The success of their business led to vast generational wealth, with luxurious properties on both the East and West coasts, and invitations to the most exclusive events in the country. None of the Bloomingdale's needed to work. Still, Alfred intended to do something with his life, make a name for himself in a way that was separate from the family name. Alfred Schiffer Bloomingdale was born in April of 1916 to Hiram and Rosalind Bloomingdale. He was the youngest of three boys who were all athletically inclined. The Bloomingdale children attended exclusive New York City private schools, and learned alongside children of the rich and famous. For college, Alfred attended Brown, where he played football and was on the Delta Kappa Epsilon fraternity. Despite his Ivy League beginnings, Alfred felt lost about the direction he wanted his life to take. After graduating, he spent three years working as a Bloomingdale salesman before stepping away from the family business. Alfred completely shifted gears, exploring his interest in Broadway shows. From 1939 to 1949, he produced 20 Broadway musicals. Many shows were complete flops, although Alfred did see some success with a 1943 revival of The Ziegfeld Follies starring Milton Berle. He also took on work as a theatrical agent. At one point, early in their careers, Alfred represented Judy Garland and Frank Sinatra. Around that time, Alfred married his first wife, showgirl Barbara Brewster. The marriage was short-lived and quickly ended in divorce. The failed marriage made Alfred assess his priorities. His accomplishments in the theater world were not enough for a lifelong career. Alfred then turned his sights to the glitzy opulence of Hollywood films. After World War II ended, he decided to relocate to Los Angeles. Through his connections, Alfred landed an executive position at Columbia Pictures. Soon after his move, Alfred met Betty Lee Newling, the woman who would become his second wife. Betsy, as everyone called her, was an aspiring actress and the daughter of an esteemed Beverly Hills orthodontist. Betsy was spirited, assertive, and exuded an air of sophistication that Alfred found intoxicating. Under Betsy's influence, Alfred converted from a Jewish Democrat to a Catholic Republican. Alfred and Betsy were married in 1946. Right away, they were a classic power couple. Alfred was skilled at networking, an asset that would lead to a lucrative business endeavor. Betsy was personable, and could strike up a conversation with just about anyone. Together, they became key influencers of the influential. From coast to coast, Betsy and Alfred Bloomingdale were considered socialites. The Bloomingdales raised their three children, Jeffrey, Lisa, and Robert in a Bel Air mansion. Like their father, the kids all attended prestigious schools and were given anything they desired. While family time was a priority, Alfred was also a frequent flyer. Betsy and the children favored the West Coast, but Alfred loved dividing his time between cities. In 1950, Alfred had a light bulb moment during a night out in New York City. While dining out with wealthy friends at an upscale restaurant, he realized how burdensome it was to carry around large sums of cash. In establishing his business Dine and Sign, Alfred wanted consumers to have the option to purchase goods or services using a card with the promise of paying later. As quoted in the New York Times, Alfred felt strongly that the day will come when the plastic card will make money obsolete. Alfred wasn't the first person to come up with the idea of a credit card, but he was definitely influential in ushering in the credit card era, earning him the moniker Father of the Credit Card. Like any good business shark, Alfred narrowed in on his competition. Through a friend, Alfred found out about the Diners Club card, the first charge card to be widely used for dining and travel expenses. Several meetings between Alfred and Diners Club founders, Frank McNamara and Ralph E. Schneider led to a merger Alfred simply made them an offer they couldn't refuse and bought them out. In 1951, Alfred was named vice president of the Diners Club. And in 1964, he served as chairman on the board of directors. There were 2 million Diners Club cards in use by the time Alfred retired in the late 1960s. But an independent charge card company couldn't compete with large credit card corporations like Visa and MasterCard. Diner's Club International was later acquired by Citigroup. The success of Diner's Club supplemented Alfred's inherited wealth. By 1969, he had more money than he could possibly spend in a lifetime. His generosity knew no bounds, and Betsy had come to expect a certain standard of living. Over the years, Betsy gained a reputation as a fashion icon, making frequent trips overseas to shop in Parisian boutiques. She threw extravagant dinner parties with high caliber guests that included Rupert Murdoch, Walter Cronkite, and Malcolm Forbes. In 1981, Betsy and Alfred attended the royal wedding of Prince Charles and Lady Diana Spencer. Like most people around the new year, I've been thinking about my health, cutting back on eating out, making sustainable health swaps at home, and increasing my workouts are all goals of mine this year. Thrive Market has been a total game changer for me when it comes to healthy groceries and getting them conveniently as I order them from the couch. Thrive Market is a one-stop shop for all things grocery and household. Ordering everything online and getting it delivered to my doorstep has helped me get the health conscious groceries I need to maintain my goals. I really appreciate Thrive's commitment to quality. They carry the best brands with top tier ingredients and sourcing methods. With Thrive, you can filter their options online and customize your shopping experience. They have organic kid snacks, low sugar options, gluten-free pantry essentials, and even top quality skincare items, which I love. And I haven't even gotten to the best part yet. As a Thrive Market member, you're saving big on every grocery order. I'm talking over 30% in savings on average. They have this awesome deals page that changes daily and also features some of my favorite brands. Personally, I love Bob's Red Mill Old Fashioned Rolled Oats and Justin's Classic Almond Butter. You're not just helping yourself when you join Thrive Market, you're also helping others too. Thrive Market has a one-for-one membership matching program, which means when you join, they give back to a family in need. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. Go to thrivemarket.com murderish for 30% off your first order, plus a free $60 gift. That's T-H-R-I-V-E market.com murderish thrivemarket.com slash murderish. If traveling more is one of your 2024 New Year resolutions, upgrade your luggage and check out base. Navigating the airport can be stressful, let's face it. From the constant pocket checking for my ID to the occasional gate number memory lapse, it can be a real struggle. My base bag relieves some of that airport stress because of its functionality, not to mention how effortlessly chic it makes me look while I'm traveling. Base, brought to you by the talented actress, Shea Mitchell, is all about delivering sleek and affordable bags, luggage, and accessories that help you travel with ease and style. Base has thought of everything you'd ever want in a piece of luggage, including 360-degree gliding wheels, a cushy handle, a built-in weight indicator, washable bags for your dirty clothes, and all the interior pockets to keep things in order. Base luggage comes in various sizes and colors. For those quick getaways, the Weekender bag is my personal go-to. It's super functional, and it even has a spot to stash your shoes separately, which let's face it, I definitely need that. Every piece is crafted to look better with every mile. So whether it's in cargo or overhead, you don't have to stress. It's no wonder BASE has over 30,000 five-star reviews. Whether you're gearing up for a spontaneous trip or aiming to breeze through the security line, BASE has your back, literally. Right now, BASE is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase by visiting basetravel.com murderish. Go to basetravel.com murderish for 15% off your first purchase. That's B-E-I-S travel.com slash murderish. The Bloomingdale's most noteworthy friendship was with Ronald and Nancy Reagan. They lived in the same Los Angeles neighborhood, just a few houses apart. So holidays and celebratory occasions often involved the Bloomingdale and Reagan families Coming together. Betsy was particularly close with Nancy. As a patron of European haute couture designers, Betsy introduced Nancy to the hottest fashion trends. According to CBS News, Betsy had 11 closets at the family's LA mansion, which were stuffed to the gills with designer gowns. Betsy's style landed her on countless best dress lists over the years. Having friends in high places paid off for the Bloomingdales. Alfred became politically active after the 1964 Republican National Convention. A few years later, he played a role in Ronald Reagan's ascension to California governor. In an act of support, Betsy and Alfred followed their friends to Washington, D.C. during Reagan's presidential campaign. With their children grown and on their own, the Bloomingdales had an apartment at the Watergate Hotel, so they could visit the Reagans regularly. When Ronald Reagan was elected the 40th president of the United States, he appointed Alfred to his Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board and named him a member of the US Advisory Commission on Public Democracy. This meant Alfred Bloomingdale was part of Reagan's kitchen cabinet, a term applied to close friends and allies who privately advised Reagan during his time in office. Being a part of Reagan's inner circle afforded both Alfred and Betsy a great deal of influence. Betsy Bloomingdale has often been referred to as the first friend to the first lady, since Nancy confided in her more than anyone else. Betsy and Alfred were frequent guests at the White House. Reporters praised the Bloomingdales in society columns for their charity work and photograph them alongside political royalty but being front and center didn't always result in a positive outcome for decades the bloomingdales were very well liked in social contexts and in media publicity as betsy would soon learn the press could be fickle once alfred's secret was out public opinion of the bloomingdales shifted from acclaim to harsh judgment. The biggest scandal of the Bloomingdale's lives was Vicky Morgan. Alfred and Vicky maintained their affair on and off for over 11 years. From the time she was a naive teenager into adulthood, Vicki had enjoyed a life of excess thanks to Alfred's pampering. Alfred remained the leading man in Vicki's life, but she did get involved with other men as well. Over the years, Vicky had three ill-fated marriages and a variety of other entanglements. According to the New York Times, she had affairs with financier Bernie Kornfeld, King Hassan of Morocco, as well as the daughter of a Saudi king. In the end, Vicky always came back to Alfred. Vicky could count on Alfred for trips to far-off places, a monthly allowance, and the kind of luxurious lifestyle that comes with exalted wealth. Alfred took her on shopping sprees at designer boutiques. He dined with Vicky at the finest establishments and even funded her acting school tuition. They were openly affectionate in public, as though money could cloak them from public scrutiny. It all came crashing down for Vicky in 1973. One way or another, Betsy Bloomingdale heard about the affair between her husband and Vicky Morgan. A prevailing rumor is that Nancy Reagan saw Alfred and Vicky out in public and told her best friend Betsy the awful truth. It's difficult to say whether Betsy believed her husband had been faithful throughout their 35-year marriage. Without a doubt, news of the long-term affair shattered her. Betsy reacted with sheer contempt, not for her cheating husband, but for his mistress. She demanded Alfred cut off all contact with Vicky. Betsy threatened to leave him and expose his sadistic sexual proclivities if he didn't. Alfred agreed to end the relationship with Vicky, but the affair continued in secrecy for several years after. In the early 1980s, Alfred was reminded of his mortality. At age 66, he was diagnosed with throat cancer and it was terminal. By February of 1982, Alfred's health was quickly deteriorating and he needed to be hospitalized. Doctors told him he only had about two months to live. While Alfred was hospitalized, Betsy got his affairs in order. That's when she learned about the monthly allowance he paid Vicky. For years, Alfred had given Vicky $18,000 a month, roughly $58,000 today. Betsy put a stop to that right away. In his darkest hour, Betsy was right there by her husband's side. Vicky snuck in for visits, supposedly disguised as a nurse. Vicky would later claim that at one point during his decline, Alfred promised to take care of her and her son financially after he was gone. Alfred passed away two days later. Alfred's death made Vicky feel like the ground had opened and swallowed up her entire life. All at once, her ability to survive in the world was stripped away. Vicky recalled the promise Alfred had made to support her even after his death, but Betsy would do everything in her power to prevent Vicky from getting a penny. A few months after Alfred's death, Vicky filed an $11 million palimony suit. According to Cornell Law School's Legal Information Institute, palimony is the payment of financial support from one party to another following the end of a relationship not legally recognized as marriage. As reported by the Washington Post, Vicky claimed in the lawsuit that she'd spent 12 years serving as a therapist to the late Alfred Bloomingdale in an effort to help him overcome his Marquis de Sade complex, a disorder whereby the person afflicted gets sexually aroused by immense pain or humiliation being inflicted upon others non-consensually. During court proceedings, Vicky aired out her dirty laundry for the gossip-hungry press. She testified about being forced to watch Alfred strip down other women to bind and flog them. She spoke about the lurid liaisons with groups of politicians under Alfred's command. The media went wild, using words like sleazy and harlot to describe the troubled young woman. With her testimony, Vicky wanted to convey just how much suffering she'd endured out of loyalty. Vicky insisted that Alfred would have never reneged on his promise of lifelong financial support. According to the Washington Post, the trial became so sensational that White House aide Morgan Mason met with Vicky's lawyer to request Betsy Bloomingdale be shown compassion. Vicki Morgan was completely vilified in her own lawsuit. In the fall of 1982, the judge dismissed the palimony suit. As quoted by the Washington Post, Judge Christian Markey concluded, the relationship between Alfred Bloomingdale and Vicki Morgan was no more than that of a wealthy, older, married paramour and a young, well-paid mistress and was explicitly founded on paid sexual services. In Betsy's view, Vicki represented her late husband's most sinful indiscretion. As Alfred's mistress, Vicki's services had been rendered, and she had been paid more than her due. It was time to say good riddance to Vicki Morgan, so Betsy could salvage her dignity and put Alfred's affair behind her it wasn't so easy for Vicky to move on. With Alfred gone, Vicky had no money coming in. She spiraled into a deep depression, completely lost without the support of the only father figure she'd ever known. Vicky was a long-term Valium user and Alfred's death pushed her over the edge into addiction. There was no way Vicky could afford to pay rent on the apartment that Alfred had financed. As days passed into weeks, she scrambled for a solution. It felt like only yesterday, she was drinking champagne in a designer gown. And now she was a breath away from homelessness. Lack of sleep was impacting my energy and focus during the day. But then I found my better sleep savior, BiOptimizer's magnesium breakthrough. Insomnia can be a symptom of magnesium deficiency, and apparently four out of five Americans are magnesium deficient. Since I started incorporating magnesium breakthrough into my routine, my sleep has been transformed. I take BiOptimizers magnesium breakthrough during my nighttime skincare routine, and I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep. Not to mention it's been great for my workout recovery. It's so important to get a great sleep so I can show up better for my family, my friends, and my podcast team. Unlike other magnesium supplements, Magnesium Breakthrough delivers all seven essential forms, not just one to two. This unique blend doesn't just improve sleep, it enhances digestion, supports muscle recovery, and promotes overall well being. From combating migraines and chronic pain, to boosting energy and supporting heart health, Magnesium Breakthrough is the natural all-in-one solution. Plus with optimized absorption, all natural ingredients, and a 365 day money back guarantee, it's the number one selling product that's constantly improving to end physical suffering. Don't miss out on the most relaxing sleep ever with Magnesium Breakthrough for an exclusive offer for my listeners Go to buyoptimizers.com murderish and use promo code murderish during checkout to save 10%. And in addition to the discount you get by using promo code murderish, you can get gifts with purchase up to two travel size bottles of Magnesium Breakthrough. Act fast. This is a limited time offer. Go now to buyoptimizers.com murderish. I've been making more mindful food choices, and one thing that's helped me immensely is Green Chef. If you've been a listener of Murderish for a while now, you've probably heard me mention Green Chef before. But for those of you who have no idea what Green Chef is, let me put you on. Green Chef isn't just your regular meal kit company. It's the CCOF certified number one meal kit for clean eating. Elevate your everyday wellness with this meal kit and discover new gut-friendly recipes every week. Green Chef has this new gut and brain health meal plan that's a game changer. It's all about science-backed recipes that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and boost energy and immunity. Building healthier habits has never been easier than with Green Chef. With chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes featuring certified organic fruits and veggies, organic cage-free eggs, and sustainably sourced seafood, Green Chef delivers everything you need to eat clean the easy way. And Green Chef isn't just about eating clean, but living clean too. With Green Chef, you can count on meals that are good for your taste buds, good for your body, and good for the planet. Eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Green Chef knows that variety is the spice of life. With 80 plus flavor packed options every week, you're in for a culinary adventure. Customize your meals to fit your lifestyle. They offer keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, or protein-packed. As a busy mom and entrepreneur, I appreciate the convenience of Green Chef. No more long lines at the grocery store or forgetting that one ingredient for dinner. Green Chef makes dinner easy for me by delivering everything I need right to my doorstep. Go to greenchef.com slash 60murderish And use code 60MURDERISH to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com slash 60MURDERISH with code 60MURDERISH. And remember, Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well. Seemingly out of the blue, there was another man in Vicky's life. Marvin Pancos moved into Vicky's condo in the summer of 1983, providing emotional and moral support while Vicky mourned the glamorous life she once had. Vicky had known Marvin since 1979 when they met at the Thaleans Community Mental Health Center. At the time, Vicky was undergoing intense therapy following the collapse of her third marriage to a wealthy real estate developer. Like most things in Vicky's life, Alfred had footed the bill for her treatment. Marvin was no stranger to mental hospitals. He'd been in and out of institutions for years, though his diagnosis varied depending on which doctor was treating him. According to Vanity Fair, the labels given to Marvin's mental illness included schizophrenia, manic depression, psychosis, and masochism. Vicky and Marvin were in their most vulnerable condition when they struck up a friendship in the psych ward. In the years that followed, they stayed in touch and eventually became roommates. It was an unlikely friendship. If Vicky was the trophy vixen who elbowed her way into Hollywood's inner circle, Marvin was the sullen outlier with a chip on his shoulder. He tried his best to win favor with the social elite, but he could never score an invite to the party, so to speak. Bowing in the presence of celebrity, even if it was more like notoriety in Vicky's case, was nothing new for Marvin. He'd spent his entire working life in the background at top Hollywood agencies. Marvin got his start as a gopher for the publicity firm Rogers & Cohen. At famed talent agency William Morris, he operated the Xerox machine, Then, he spent a year working in the office of Hollywood and Broadway producer Alan Carr as a personal assistant. As Vanity Fair would explain it, Marvin was a homosexual schizophrenic alcoholic on the fringes of show business, a collector of celebrities' telephone numbers. He admired the old Hollywood glamour that Vicky exuded from every pore and longed to be close to that energy. It was almost like Marvin believed charisma was contagious. In the summer of 1983, Vicky asked Marvin if he wanted to move in with her. He jumped at the chance. Like every other aspect of his life though, living with Vicky did not turn out how he'd hoped. The apartment Alfred had funded for years was completely unaffordable for Vicky. She'd grown accustomed to a certain lifestyle but it was unattainable without her rich admirer. Since Alfred's passing, Vicky had become a shadow of her former self. Most of her time was spent in bed, unable to cope with the new reality she faced. Marvin stepped in. He bought Vicky groceries, walked her dog, ran errands for her, and even made monthly payments on a car she totaled one drunken night. But nothing seemed to help. Vicky was lost in complete despair. Only two people know for sure what happened on the night of July 6, 1983, Marvin and Vicky. By the morning, Vicky was dead. At 3:20 in the morning on July 7th, Marvin Pancos marched into a North Hollywood police station. With just four words, Marvin set chaos in motion. As reported by the Washington Post, he told an officer, I just killed someone. Marvin was booked right away. LAPD detective Bill Welch, an 18-year veteran, led the murder investigation. Under questioning, Marvin told detectives he and Vicky had only been living together for three weeks. He initially told officers that he and Vicky had been arguing about finances the night before. The disagreement ended on bad terms. Marvin said he waited until Vicky was asleep and then he beat her with a baseball bat until he felt sure she was dead. But Marvin insisted Vicky had wanted to die since her life started to spiral into a haze of Valium and cocaine without Alfred. According to Vanity Fair, Marvin said he simply did what Vicky couldn't do herself. It was a pity kill, according to Marvin. Detectives thoroughly searched the three-bedroom condo where Vicky had been living with Marvin. Dozens of packed moving boxes filled each room. Investigators found Vicky's battered body still dressed in her nightclothes and sprawled across her bed. A bloody baseball bat was found nearby. Sadly, the bat used to murder Vicky belonged to Vicky's son, Todd, who lived at the condo when he wasn't with his father. If Marvin had done this, he'd chosen a deeply intimate method, standing in close proximity to Vicky as he beat her to death. Vicky's cause of death was listed in the LA County Coroner's report as multiple skull fractures and an intracerebral hemorrhage. In other words, blunt force trauma. A few details about the crime did not add up for Detective Welch. Marvin Pancoast had no blood spatter on his clothing, which seemed unusual given the method of killing. There were no fingerprints at the condo or on the murder weapon. Additionally, The dresser drawers in Vicky's bedroom had been ransacked. Detective Welch learned from Vicky's friends that Vicky and Marvin had planned to part ways and live in separate apartments. Just before she was killed, Vicky sold her Mercedes Benz out of desperation for money. It was one of her most treasured possessions. While Detective Welch tried to make sense of his observations at the scene rumors circulated around Los Angeles. The lurid gossip surrounding Vicki's murder obscured the tragedy of her untimely end. In death, public speculation generated a level of fame that Vicky had never known while she was alive. Early on, the most prevailing rumor was about sex tapes. Word got out that there were recordings of sexual encounters with Vicky, other women, and members of President Reagan's cabinet. According to Vanity Fair, the existence of these tapes fueled speculation about Vicky reaching her breaking point and threatening to sell the scandalous sex tapes unless someone bought her off. Maybe Marvin Pancoast was a plant and hitman hired to silence Vicki's threats. If any secret sex tapes did exist, they were never found. There were no tapes at the scene of Vicky's murder, and nobody ever presented any evidence of their existence. But that didn't stop people from talking. Vicky's reputation was dragged through the mud again and again. Marvin Panko's 1984 murder trial was nothing short of a complete character assassination. The thing was, the person the defense aimed to assassinate was already dead. The sensational trial began in July of 1984. One of the biggest obstacles Marvin's legal team faced was his confession, which he had since retracted. There was also an incriminating jailhouse interview that Marvin had done with the Herald-Examiner 24 hours after turning himself in. As reported by LA Weekly, two days into his stay at the LA County Jail, Marvin detailed his crime by saying, I went upstairs and turned the water on in the bathroom. Then I started hitting her. She raised up in the bed when I hit her the first time. It scared me, but I just kept hitting her again and again. I don't know how many times. At the time, Marvin told the Examiner reporter that his motive for killing Vicky was witnessing how she disrespected her own mother. Defense attorneys, Arthur Barons and Charles Matthews chose to backpedal as part of their strategy. They assured jurors, they would prove someone else killed Vicky Morgan and it all centered around the alleged sex tapes. Despite Barron's publicly saying he had proof of the secret recordings Marvin's defense team had nothing to support that claim. According to Time Magazine, subpoenas issued to the FBI, CIA, and the LAPD for any videotapes and documents regarding the victim's sexual escapades left Barron's empty-handed. Before the trial, Barron's had told a reporter that one public figure on the tapes was presidential counselor Edwin Meese. As reported by Time Magazine, Meese publicly declared that he had never even met Vicki Morgan. If there were any high-profile men who'd appeared on the alleged tapes, they were likely shaking in their boots, fearing exposure and public condemnation. Deputy DA Stanley Weisberg focused on the facts. He played Marvin's recorded confession for the court. According to the Sacramento Bee, the jury heard him explain to investigators that he killed Vicky because she treated him like a slave boy. Defense attorney, Charles Matthews, reframed the statement to his client's benefit. He made it seem like Marvin was victimized by the victim. As quoted by the Santa Cruz Sentinel, in Vicky, he had a person who would abuse him in many ways, yet would be a friend and ally. The bond lies somewhere in the loneliness and absolute despair both shared. The defense team argued that other people in Vicky's life had a much stronger motive to harm her. Gordon Basikas, a writer who worked with Vicky to ghostwrite her autobiography, was called to testify. What started as a working relationship had morphed into an affair. According to Vanity Fair, Gordon and Vicky worked together for eight months before her death. Gordon told the courtroom, a film producer he worked for had introduced him to her. As it turned out, this producer was another one of Vicki's paramours. Gordon's affair with the victim had started soon after their first meeting. As reported by Vanity Fair, a week before Vicky was murdered, she broke off their entanglement and fired Gordon as a collaborator. Under cross-examination, the defense poked holes in Gordon's credibility and character. Matthews revealed that Vicki and Gordon's affair had not ended as amicably as prosecutors implied. The pair had a fight the night before Vicky was killed. Of course, there were two versions to every story. On the stand, Gordon admitted he pushed Vicky around but denied allegations of leaving bruises all over her body. As reported by the New York Times, Gordon testified that he and Vicky had made up after their argument and he stayed the night. In stark contrast to Gordon's testimony, Marvin Pancoast had told detectives during his confession that Gordon beat the shit out of her. Marvin's defense harped on the fact that police didn't even question Gordon until three months after Vicky's murder. However, Gordon had a solid alibi. At the time of Vicky's murder, he was at home with his wife watching the All-Star game on TV. Gordon's wife took the stand to corroborate his alibi. She still had some lingering resentment from Gordon's affair with Vicky, so she had little reason to lie on his behalf. The LAPD's failure to question Gordon early in the investigation fed into one of the defense team's narratives. This had been a sloppy murder investigation from the get-go. Matthews pointed out that no fingerprints had been taken at the crime scene and the house had not been sealed. The condo where Vicky was brutally murdered could have been forensically compromised. Matthews was quoted by Vanity Fair as saying, if this is not an inept police investigation, then it's a deliberate cover up. Once again, the defense circled back to the alleged explicit tapes. Matthews theorized that someone trying to protect their reputation had killed Vicki Morgan. The murder was a response to her alleged threats to make the sex tapes public. Without any physical evidence whatsoever, no one was allowed to testify about the existence of the videotapes on which the defense had hinged their case. Marvin's defense had failed to accomplish what was promised in opening statements. They couldn't prove there were sex tapes with footage of the victim and influential public figures. The strongest evidence, Marvin's own confession, came into focus as the jury tried to arrive at a verdict. After less than six hours of deliberation, the 10-person jury panel found Marvin Pankos guilty of first-degree murder. Yet the trial had not concluded just yet. Marvin's attorneys had entered a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity. A few days later, Marvin's trial entered the sanity phase. Now, the burden was on Barron's and Matthews to prove their client was not of sound mind when he took Vicki Morgan's life. They also argued that Marvin was not sane when he confessed to the crime. As reported by the New York Times, Matthews pointed out that Marvin had a history of confessing to crimes he didn't commit, including the Manson family murders. Maybe that pattern could explain away his confession to Vicky's murder. According to United Press International, Dr. Irving A. Matzner, who testified for the defense, said that Mr. Pancoast has been psychotic and without sanity for 15 years. Dr. Matzner determined that Marvin had fooled some doctors into believing that he was sane, but it was all an act. As quoted by UPI, the doctor told the court that the terror of the deed that had taken place caused him to be in the best condition of reality he had been in for a while. But of course, it didn't last. In Dr. Matzner's professional opinion, someone as mentally ill as Marvin should not be held accountable for what he'd done. Dr. William Vickery, testifying for the prosecution, stated that it all came down to rage. Around the time Vicky was murdered, Marvin was distraught and angry. A doctor whom Marvin found sexually attractive had ended their regular counseling sessions just two days before the murder. The rejection had been too much for Marvin and he unleashed his blind fury on Vicky. As quoted by UPI, Dr. Vickery concluded Marvin's behavior didn't meet the standard definition of legal insanity, saying even in his frenzy, If someone had grabbed him at the time and asked him, what are you doing? Don't you know this is wrong? He would have been able to recognize it was. The jury had to decide which doctor presented a more convincing argument. If Marvin's insanity plea was accepted, he'd be committed to a mental hospital for up to one year. If the jury panel deemed him sane, Marvin faced 25 years to life in prison the jury found Marvin Pankos guilty of murder and determined he was sane. He was sent to San Quentin Prison to serve out a prison term of 26 years to life. In response to the verdict, Matthews conveyed how he believed jurors made the wrong decision, telling the Sacramento Bee, the real killer of Vicki Morgan is still outside and the whole truth never got to the jury. Vicki Morgan was a time bomb who could have hurt a lot of people and someone who didn't want to be hurt took her out. It was evident the jury didn't buy the conspiracy story the defense tried to sell. Yet Vicki's name continued to be slandered by Marvin's defense counsel and the media for many years after the trial concluded. A 1986 book titled Vicky written by Joyce Milton and Anne Louise Bardock Milton, portrayed Vicki Morgan in a more compassionate light. As quoted by the Daily Item, a passage from the book reads, Vicki inspired affection. She wasn't just a gold digger. She could have gotten millions from Bloomingdale, laughed it off, and deserted him. It's a fantasy every woman has. This man is going to make you a princess, and you're the one woman who can turn his life around. After Vicky's death, there was a continuation of the palimony lawsuit against Alfred Bloomingdale's estate. In December of 1984, a jury awarded $200,000, or $563,000 today, to Vicki Morgan's estate, which was passed on to her surviving son, Todd. In 1986, Marvin Pancoast was diagnosed with AIDS. He was moved to a prison in Vacaville, California that housed inmates with the disease. He remained there until his death in 1991. Marvin passed away at the age of 42 due to complications related to AIDS. Vicki Morgan was a dreamer. She was drawn to respected and financially advantaged men because they could treat her like the queen she embodied. She went from being a have-not to a have but it wouldn't last. In her darkest hour, Vicki's life was cut short by a man she trusted. Though Marvin Pancos committed a heinous, headline-worthy crime, it's Vicky who made headlines. Not because she was on the losing end of murder, but because of her personal life, which didn't fit well into what society deems acceptable behavior. Vicki Morgan was not a sympathetic victim. But let us not forget, she was also a mother and a human being. Thanks so much for listening to Murderish. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss any new episodes. I hope you'll join me at a live meetup on February 24th, 2024, that I'm co hosting with my good friends, Aaron and Justin hosts of the Generation Y podcast. The free meetup is happening in North Hollywood at the Idle Hour Bar on Saturday, February 24th, 2024. Aaron, Justin, and I will be there for a casual hangout with friends and fans of our podcasts. Mark your calendars for February 24th, 2024 and join us in Los Angeles for a casual and fun evening. Go to murderish.com for more event details. I hope to see you there. Please consider supporting Season of Justice, a nonprofit organization that provides resources to help solve cold cases. For the entire month of January, 2024, I'm partnering with Season of Justice to collect donations and bring awareness to this very worthy organization in hopes of solving cold cases and providing some sense of peace for crime victims' families. To donate, just text MURDERISH to 53555. For all donations of $25 and over, the donator will get a shout-out on an upcoming episode of MURDERISH. Just text MURDERISH to 53555 or go to murderish.com for more details. Shout-out to Jen Horwitz for donating. Thank you so much for your support. If you enjoy MURDERISH, please consider leaving a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Are you watching a lot of true crime documentaries and want a community of like-minded people to talk about them with? Join the true crime TV club I started. We call ourselves the Serial Streamers and we meet in my Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube comments a couple times a month to dish about all the crazy true crime docs we're watching together. If you wanna join Serial Streamers, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube, at Jamie on air. That's J-A-M-I on air. And then just watch for videos about the latest TV series we're watching together. So you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts. That's Jamie on air on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. If you want ad-free episodes of Murderish, sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon or at Murderish.com and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. Thank you so much to Gay Berry, Glory G, Lynn M, and Trisha for becoming the latest Murderish Behind the Mic supporters. This episode was researched and written by Allison Schwartz. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. I need your help with a missing person case, Katherine Barbara Davidson. An African-American child has been missing since September 1st of 1973. Nicknamed Kathy, she was about age seven when she disappeared from Warren Dunes State Park in Sawyer, Michigan. It's believed her possible death may have occurred in Chicago, Illinois, close to the time of her disappearance. The FBI's Detroit field office and Michigan State Police are seeking the public's help for any information that could help solve this cold case. Anyone with information should reach out to your local FBI field office, or you can submit an anonymous tip on tips.fbi.gov. I'll leave a link to this in the show notes.